the story of Erichtho's necromantic rite. Thessaly is a land of sun and shadows, of mountain crags and wide green plains, of thickly wooded forests and neatly planted vineyards. It is the land of the gods, Mount Olympus rising up into the clouds to the north, and it is the land of heroes, the pass of Thermopylae, the hot gates taking you south to Locri. And above all else, it is the land of witches. The plants, the herbs, the very rocks of Thessaly can be turned to evil. The gods themselves can do nothing. These witches bend them to their own will using potions and incantations and the secrets of wizards and magicians. They will take the call from a newborn foal and use it to poison or destroy men's minds. They fill old men with illicit lust and drive men towards loves not intended for them by fate or fortune. They can command the very skies, the very gods, the very universe itself. They will halt the movement of the heavens and drench the land with unnatural rain. They whip up the sea when there is no wind. They stop the waterfall in its tracks. The Nile does not flood and Olympus sinks below the clouds. They can draw down the stars and the moon from the sky. And when the moon is dragged into Earth's shadows, she spills out her light as poisonous foam, and the witches gather the tainted grass to mix in their bronze cauldrons. But Eric, though, she is another type of beast altogether. Grasping for the foal or drawing down the stars is too holy, too devout for her. She is mistress of the graves, devoted to Erebus, the god of darkness, and his wife Night, and all the gods of the underworld and the shadows. Her face is haggard and deathly pale, her hair matted and filled with filth. She lives in abandoned tombs, driving out the ghosts, placing herself near to an abundant supply of her chief requirement, the dead. She steals charred bones and ashes still smoking from funeral pyres, carrying off the holy incense as well while she's there. She even gathers the fragments of clothes and strands of hair as they flutter away from the corpse, still smelling of death. She breaks open the body out of the sarcophagus, beating on the dry and preserved bones, gnawing at the yellowed fingernails and scooping out the solidified eyeballs in delight. She takes down the hanging bodies of criminals with her own mouth chewing at the noose. She scrapes at the remains of the crucified, scratching at the rain-beaten flesh and bones exposed to the sun, and she steals the nails that were driven into their hands, clotted with gore. If a body is left exposed, she waits for the wolves to tear into the flesh and then steals their treats from their mouths. She is not always patient enough to wait for a corpse to come her way, she is more than willing to murder the living in order to procure the dead. Some of her spells require the warmth of freshly spilled blood, or the use of still quivering organs for her ghoulish festivals. And so she slits the throat of a human being like an animal led to sacrifice. Sometimes she buries living souls in tombs and takes the dead corpse out in a perverted funeral procession. The gods above grant her every prayer at her first asking, for they dread to hear a second spell. It was the night before the battle, and dawn was slow in coming. Camped out by the plain of Pharsalus, the men could see the shadows of the hills around them, 
and they had heard local rumours of the witch who lived in the dark tombs at their feet. While most of the men shuddered and turned their backs to the hills, Sextus Pompey, son of the general, was more attracted than repulsed. Sextus did not like camping out in the wilds, he did not like the deserted plains of northern Greece, and he did not like sitting around night after night waiting for something to happen. Most of all, he did not like uncertainty. Sextus was a planner. He liked to organise himself, his household, his men and his life, so that nothing came as a surprise, but events always proceeded in a sensible order to a foregone conclusion. This endless waiting in the Thessalian night was driving his mind to distraction. Any level of uncertainty around what to have for dinner irked him, and now he found himself with no idea whether or not he would still be alive in 24 hours' time. The clash between Julius Caesar and his father Pompey was like no other Rome had ever seen, and none could say which of the two distinguished generals would prevail. And so Sextus waited, and shivered, and rocked back and forth, and groaned, and asked every man around him, What do you think will happen? What do you think will happen? What do you think? What do you think? Until no one would talk to him, for all the others preferred to turn to wine and women and the warmth of the fire for temporary relief. At the darkest hour of the night, Sextus picked his way alone across the empty fields towards the tombs. For a while he searched in vain, peering into the depths of a sarcophagus with the lid sitting slightly off, poking around the urns near to fresh grave markers. But then he saw her. Where the cliff jutted out over the graveyard and the Balkan mountains sloped down to the plain of Pharsalia, she sat at the top of a cliff, waving her arms to weave a spell. Breathing heavily, Sextus hauled himself up the rocky slope towards her, and as he came near he could hear her muttering with vile incantations. She ordered the gods of the underworld not to break their promise to her, not to move the battle from her fields, but to make sure the Roman dead piled up at her feet across the plain when morning broke. She was hoping that either Caesar or Pompey or both of them would be left in pieces strewn across the battlefield, so she could gather their bones and master their ghosts. Sextus approached quietly across the wet grass, almost on tiptoe. Suddenly his feet found a stray twig that had been blown to the ground and it snapped, and the witch's head shot up. Oh, famed Thessalian, Sextus declared grandly before the witch could speak. You have the power to reveal the future to mortal men, and even, they say, to alter the course of events. Speak to the gods for me, or extract the answers I need from the ghosts and shadows of the underworld. Call death herself, and make her tell me which one of us she will come for tomorrow. I am no ordinary soldier, as you may know, and here he puffed himself up a little, for I am the son of Magnus, the great Pompey, the leader of the Roman state. After tomorrow, I will either be heir to the world itself or to immense ruin. And so I pray you tell me, please, what will be the outcome of the battle tomorrow? Erichtho pulled her matted hair away from her eyes to peer short-sightedly at the quivering man before her. She sucked on her blackened, gappy teeth and shook her head a little. What you ask, she said, might be easier if you yourself were not quite so exalted. And she made him a little mock bow and carried on. If a single man is doomed to die, this craft of magic can change his fate, and the gods can be forced to choose another to suffer and wither away. 
Or if someone is destined to live a long life, we can cut it short by the use of secret herbs and potions. But sometimes the chain of events is fixed from the beginning of the world, and all humankind stands beneath a single blow. <coughs> then all the fates are troubled by a single change, and not even the art and skill of our chants and incantations can change it. In these cases, all the Thessalians will admit that fortune is the stronger. Sextus' shoulders slumped and he turned to walk away, but the witch held up her bony hand and called out in her raspy voice, Stop! I can still help you. I cannot change your fate, for as you so rightly said, you are no ordinary soldier, and on your fate hangs the fate of the world itself. But if you may be content with foreknowledge, if it is only uncertainty that troubles you, and you wish only to know your stars, not to change them, well then, then I can help you. Yes, that is what I asked, said Sextus, his teeth chattering with more than cold in the night air. I go to battle tomorrow, and the fates will fall as they may, but this doubt and dread is driving me to distraction. I want to know what will happen, whether I will be master or slave or worse. Well then, that is easy, said Eric, though, standing up and brushing down her tattered skirts. There are many places to look for such answers, in the earth, in the sky, in the depths of empty space, in the sea, on the plains, or among the cliffs of the far-off mountains of Rodopi. But we need not travel so far, for already there has been great slaughter of Roman by Roman in this war, right at our very feet. We will simply take a corpse from a Thessalian field, for its still warm lips will speak clearly, not like the vague ramblings of a shaken shade pulled back to a body whose limbs have been scorched by the sun. Come, we will find one. Not far away had been a recent skirmish, and Eric, though, her head wrapped in cloud, picked her way through the bodies thrown out to the mercy of the wolves and the carrion birds. She knew what she was looking for, a body with complete lungs and undamaged voice box that would speak clearly without her needing to strain to understand the garbled words of a mangled throat. She found a young warrior whose heart had been pierced, but who was otherwise whole. She sunk her hook into his flesh and dragged him across the stones and the rocks to the hollow beneath the cliffs where she practised her craft. Sextus stumbled down the narrow cliff path to join her. As he made his way down under the shadow of the cliff, the moonlight obscured by the rocks, he felt as if he was descending down to the very depths of Hades. Down, down he scrambled, under the shadows of yew trees whose branches never touched sunlight, into a cave lit only by an eerie greenish glow, a light produced by magic, not of this world. Eric, though, had dressed for the occasion. She had put on a robe of many colours that belonged to the Furies themselves, and she had pulled back her hair and tied it with ribbons of vipers. She began by opening up fresh wounds in the corpse's chest and filling it up with fresh blood, and cleansing the skin of gore with a magical potion. In this concoction were all the most powerful ingredients pulled from the mistakes of nature. 
the froth of a rabid dog, the innards of a lynx, the hump of a hyena and the marrow of a snake-fed stag. The sucking fish, the dragon's eye, the flying snake of Arabia and the ashes of the phoenix were all thrown in, and the lot held together by common weeds and her own spittle. But her incantation was where her strongest power lay. She screeched out with a cry that sounded barely human, echoing the barking of dogs and the howling of wolves, the cry of the owl and the serpent's hiss. Then her spell began. You furies and you Stygian horrors, you avengers and you chaos, ready to confound innumerable worlds in ruin. And you, ruler of the world below, a god whom lingering death torments through long centuries, and Styx, and that Elysium no Thessalian witch deserves, and Persephone who shuns her mother in heaven, and the third form of our patroness Hecate, through whom the shades and I converse silently, and the janitor of the wide realm who throws men's flesh to the savage hound, and the sisters who must re-spin the thread of life, and you, ancient ferryman of the fiery wave, weary of rowing shades back to me, hear my prayer. If I invoke you with sufficiently foul and impious lips, if I never chant these spells fasting from human flesh, if I have often slit open those breasts filled with divinity and laved them with warm brains, if any infant whose head and organs were laid on your platters might prevail with you, grant me my request. I do not ask for one who lurks in the depths of Tartarus, long accustomed to the dark, but for some descending spirit fleeing the light, one who clings to the threshold still of gloomy Orcus, who obeying my spells now will only go down once among the shades. If this civil war deserves your favour, let the shade of some Pompeian lately among us prophesy all things to Pompey's son. She raised her head, and there, standing before her, was the ghost of the unburied corpse at her feet. It stood back, unwilling to go near the body, reluctant to re-enter its former prison. The gaping wound, the ruined flesh is loathsome, and the poor spirit has been robbed of death's final gift, which is to die no more. Erichtho would brook no delay. She whipped the shade with a live snake and cried out to the underworld gods, "'Tisiphone and Megara, do you not hear me?' Hounds of hell, shall I drag you up into the light if you will not obey my command? And you, Hecate, who paint your face before you visit the gods above, I will show them your true form and forbid you from changing your hellish looks. You will drag yourself pale and wretched before them. I will shame you all. I will speak of the pomegranate seeds that bind Persephone. I will blast your realm, Hades, with light." And I will call upon him whose very name will cause the earth to tremble, who can look the gorgon in the eye, who lashes the furies with their own whip and swears by the sticks. Will you now obey me? Instantly the blood flowed in the lifeless corpse. The vital organs stirred and new life crept through the cold flesh. The body shivered, the muscles contracted, and then suddenly the corpse shot up from the ground and stood before the witch and the quivering mortal, his mouth gaping open soundlessly, for he could only speak when spoken to. "'Speak as I command,' Erichtho told the ghastly spectre, "'and I will reward you, for if you speak true, I will burn your body on a great pyre, and enchant it so that you can never be dragged up from the underworld again. 
Your second death will be your final death, and you may sleep in peace. But speak clearly. The gods may enjoy teasing men with riddles, but any man brave enough to consult with the shades deserves certainty when he departs. Now speak. And the dead man spoke, tears flowing down the pallid face. Pulled from the bank of the silent river, I have not yet seen the fates spinning their dreadful threads, but I did meet with the whole host of the Roman dead, and this they told me. Savage strife stirs the Roman ghosts, and a wicked civil war shatters the peace of the land of the dead. The great Roman spirits are angry. Sulla rails at his patroness, Fortune. Scipio and Cato weep for their descendants, and Catiline has broken his chains and rejoices in the chaos. The lord of the underworld has thrown open his kingdom. He sharpens broken rocks and hard steel for shackles and prepares his punishment for Caesar. For Sextus, take comfort in this. The dead are preparing to welcome your father and his house to a place of peace in the brightest part of that gloomy world. Do not be troubled by the glory of one who is to be short-lived, for the time will come and come soon that makes all the generals equal. Go forth and die. Hurry down to the shadows and there trample on the ghosts of the gods of Rome. The conflict of the generals determines only their place of burial, whether it be by the Nile or the Tiber. Do not ask me your own fate, Sextus. Your house is divided. You must fear Europe, Africa and Asia, for fortune has divided your graves across all three. And with that, the corpse fell silent and stood patiently waiting to die again. Sextus was an unhappy customer. Several times he tried to persuade the ghost to speak again, to answer his question more clearly, to give him precise information about the battle on the morrow, but to no avail. Erichtho pointed to the mouth of the cave where the first signs of dawn were creeping over the horizon. You will get your answer soon enough, son of Pompey, she said. Don't you understand? You can discover the future without going to so much trouble as this. It will always come to you eventually. And anyway, this good soldier gave you the information you wanted. You wanted certainty and you have it. For though it may or may not be this day, you will all certainly die. Sextus would have protested, but as light crept around the edges of the cave, he saw evidence of the witch's work, scattered bones and cups of poison, bat's wings and sharp knives. He knew of her reputation and found that, though he might die that day, he did not want it to be here, alone in this darkness with the witch and the corpse. And so Erichtho got to work once more and prepared her potions. Together she and Sextus built a large pyre, and the corpse willingly climbed on top of it, and finally the dead man's soul was returned to his peaceful riverbank, and the body crumbled into ashes. And the witch walked the soldier back to his camp, and there she left him, to face the uncertainty of the day knowing only one thing, that by evening many of those around him would be dead. The End Hello, I'm Juliet Harrison. Welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient medieval and early modern ghost stories. 
So this one is um, cheating a little bit. Normally I rewrite the original into a kind of new modern story that's adapted from it. This is more like a really loose translation or really close adaptation um, of Lucan's poem, uh, The Civil War, also known as Pharsalia. I've used a combination of A.S. Klein's translation, which is online, Susan Braun's translation from Oxford World Classics, and then I've gone to perseus.tufts.edu to the Latin, which also has a word study tool, um, and I've done little bits and pieces of my own translation. Uh, I do read Latin, I can translate it, but it's, uh, it takes a lot longer <laughs> to do it from scratch. Um, so it's a mixture of mine, A.S. Klein's and Susan Braun's translations, and then odd little bits of adaptation where I've changed small things but really it's it's pretty much Lucan. So Lucan's full name was Marcus Aeneas Lucanus. He lived 39 to 65 CE, so first century CE. He was forced to suicide age 25. He was friends with the Emperor Nero but they seem to have had some kind of falling out over poetry. Possibly Lucan's poetry was better or he said his poetry was better or he wrote something that offended Nero. Uh, Lucan then joined the conspiracy of Gaius Calpurnius Piso against Nero uh, and they were caught and he dobbed in his own mother uh, and then he died. Uh, this is described in Tacitus's Annals and there's also a fairly obscure life of Lucan by Suetonius who's better known for his Lives of the Twelve Caesars. Lucan's other works are lost uh, but they may have included a poem called De Incendio Urbis which means On the Fire in the City. Um which may have accused Nero of setting fire to the city of Rome. Uh, but we don't know, because sadly we don't have it. So this is the only uh, major work of Lucan's that we do have. Say so it's it's called um, On the Civil War or Civil Wars, um, but it's often known as Pharsalia purely because there's quite a few ancient texts called Civil Wars. So it's just a way of identifying which text we're talking about. Uh, Pharsalia after the Battle of Pharsalus, which is the major battle uh, in this particular war. The war was between Julius Caesar and uh, Pompey Magnus, Pompey the Great. Uh, it was a, a civil war. Um, Julius Caesar won uh, at the Battle of Pharsalus. That was the kind of big decisive battle. Um, Pompey uh, ran away, made it to Egypt, got his head chopped off by the Egyptian pharaoh Ptolemy. Um, and then Caesar uh, allied with Ptolemy's sister and enemy, and wife, Cleopatra, <laughs> to defeat Ptolemy. This part of the poem focuses on Pompey's son, Sextus Pompey. Uh, Sextus Pompey um, watched Pompey die uh, after he lost the war to Julius Caesar. Um, he fled, he spent many years fighting against first Julius Caesar, then he outlived Julius Caesar and continued fighting against Caesar's heir, Octavian, later known as the Emperor Augustus, and Caesar's friend, Mark Antony. Uh, but he was eventually defeated and he was killed uh, in what is now modern Turkey, uh, which was then Greek cities. So he actually outlived most of the other characters in the story by quite a bit, uh, but he was eventually killed uh, as part of these ongoing civil wars. So Lucan's poem is essentially a, a narrative of this particular civil war. Um, Lucan talks a lot about what a terrible, wicked, evil war it was because it's Roman against Roman. He also seems to have had some pretty clear Republican tendencies, so it's not really surprising he conspired against the emperor, to be honest. Um, he seems to favour Pompey over Julius Caesar. 
Um, he seems to be quite sort of angry throughout the poem about Caesar and the destruction of the Roman Republic um, after Caesar won this war, became dictator for life, got assassinated, and then his great nephew stroke adopted son became the first emperor. Very brief description of the fall of the Roman Republic. So Lucan tells this as a very kind of negative story. Um, it's uh, it's not a cheerful poem. He also likes, uh, as you may have noticed, a bit of gore. <laughs> there's lots of gory descriptions. There's lots of blood and guts. There's a whole sequence with people being killed by poisonous snakes in North Africa. Um, the battle sequences are quite bloody. Um, so I've actually cut back a tiny bit on some of the really gory stuff Um in, uh, in this adaptation just because of my own personal taste which really doesn't run to the gory all that much and I cut down the description of Thessalian witches as well which went on for a really 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 long time um, the scene is a sort of an inversion of the underworld scene from an earlier epic poem Virgil's Aeneid uh, which we have talked about on the podcast before um, in Virgil's Aeneid, the Trojan hero Aeneas goes down to the underworld and he sees this parade of heroes from later Roman history that are going to be his descendants, essentially. They're kind of souls waiting to be born. And this bit where this zombie that has been raised to prophesy for Pompey's son describes uh, what are past Romans, in this case, dead Romans, um, although he does make a reference to the gods of Rome, which is the deified emperors there in the future. Um, and it's a reference to this scene from Virgil, basically. This is like a really twisted version of the trip to the underworld that is typical um, and often appears in epic poetry. For example, Odysseus um, also has a, a necromantic rite and an underworld visit in the Odyssey. I also used the vivid present for the opening section, um, which is a very common technique in ancient epic poetry. If you want something to feel really exciting, you've got an action scene or something, you slip into the present tense, um, and Lucan does for that section as well. There's lots of interesting references and bits and pieces in here. There's so much I can't talk about everything because it's such a <laughs> huge text with so many bits and pieces about witches and ghosts and all sorts. Um, there's a reference to the the goddess death, Mors. Um, so it's a, a feminine word that can mean death or a dead body, but it's also a goddess who is the personification of death. I was fascinated by the multicoloured robe like the robe of the Furies, which I made into the Furies' actual robe, um, just because it made me picture Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, it may be that there's some kind of obscure connection between multicoloured clothing and divination, um, but I would have to do research into that. Uh, I only just came across it you know, doing this. Um, lots of snakes, which also connects with the Furies, as well as the Gorgons, they get a mention, which are the monstrous women with snakes for hair. And that's why Eric, though, ties her hair up with bits of snakes. Um, I skipped a few ingredients in the spell, but I didn't make any up. The only bit I made up was bat's wings lying around the cave. Um, that was me. But everything else... Uh, I've cut it. <laughs> I've cut it down from Lucan's. But all of the ingredients are from the original. And the spell itself, I've almost directly quoted from A.S. Klein because it's in verse, um, except for the word Avengers, which is from Braun's translation because um, calling them Avengers made me laugh. Uh, there's also references to Persephone, queen of the underworld, and the pomegranate seeds that she ate in the underworld that meant she couldn't go back to the upper world um, on a permanent basis. Um, 
I also cut a line where Eric Tho raises the zombie and she tells him to speak and then she does a spell to give him the knowledge that he needs, which seems a bit pointless. And usually in ancient myth and religion, the dead have access to knowledge the living don't have. This is the whole point of Oracles of the Dead, which I've also talked about before on the podcast. Um, the idea that the dead have access to this knowledge because they are closer to the divine than the living. Um, Lucan, I guess, doesn't believe that and is trying to explain how this ghost knows this future knowledge. So Eric so does a spell, but then you think, well, why can't you just do a spell to get the knowledge? So I, I just cut it. It just seemed like an unnecessary detail. And it also contradicts um, what we know from other texts of ancient thought, ancient belief on this, even if Lucan himself obviously didn't believe that, presumably. Uh, so I cut down the list of famous Roman ghosts. Most of them are fairly obscure. Um, but I did mention Sulla, who was a dictator earlier in the first century BCE, um, before Julius Caesar. He did um, waged another civil war against another Roman, Marius, and Sulla won and became dictator. Scipio and Cato fought in the Punic Wars um, much earlier uh, against Carthage. Uh, these are the wars where Hannibal led elephants over the Alps and all that um, and they were famous uh, Roman warriors who defeated Carthage and their descendants um, are both on Pompey's side um, in the civil war between Pompey and Julius Caesar. Catiline was um, a senator who conspired against the state uh, and was killed in battle um, after Cicero's spies let on about the conspiracy and that's a whole other soap opera type story um but he is um much more recent um to julius caesar anyway uh, and this is why he is in chains because he's conspired against the roman state so he's a bad guy as i mentioned the ghosts of the gods of rome are deified emperors so that's a reference to the future which is what virgil did in the aeneid as well he had references to future romans even though aeneas is meant to be their ancestor um, and the reference to um, the only thing that makes a difference is whether they're buried by the Nile or the Tiber is a reference to the deaths of Pompey and Julius Caesar. So Lucan is, of course, writing more than 100 years later. Um, and he knows what happened. Uh, Pompey was killed in Egypt. Caesar was assassinated in Rome. So Pompey is buried by the River Nile, Caesar by the River Tiber. So the plain of Pharsalia, uh, Pharsalus, where the battle was fought, um, is in Thessaly, which is a region in northern Greece, which was thought of as especially full of witches. Uh, witches drawing down the moon is also a really common trope. So I think um, partly Lucan, you know, he's got this battle. This is where the battle happened historically. And he has obviously not been able to resist the witch because they're in Thessaly. So there's got to be witches. Um we also have references to Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft. Uh, so Hecate uh, appeared in three manifestations, in the sky as the moon, as Diana or Artemis on Earth, and as Hecate in the underworld. So she's the, the underworld manifestation of this goddess. Um, she's the kind of three-headed, three-faced goddess of witchcraft. There's also a reference to an unknown him who isn't named. Braun suggests this might be some kind of creator figure, some all-powerful individual divinity with power over all the other gods. Or if it's linked to references in the Greek-Egyptian magical papyri, it could be Hermes Osiris or Typhon Seti. 
Um, the Greek Egyptian magical papyri are uh, papyrus scrolls with spells on them found in Egypt, written in Greek, hence the name. And they are from the Roman period, <laughs> mostly. Uh, so they re make references um, particularly to the gods Hermes and Osiris who are associated with the underworld. Hermes takes souls to the underworld and uh, Osiris, obviously god of mummification, one of the many Egyptian gods associated with death. Um, so it might be a reference to either of those. Um, I left out a reference in Lucan to cutting out a fetus from a woman's belly as not nature's exit because it was grim and I'm squeamish. Um, but I did want to note the connection with witches and midwifery. Um, so Caesarean sections, named of course for Julius Caesar, who probably, in fact almost certainly was not born by Caesarean section because his mother, as far as I remember, survived his birth. Um, but anyway... Uh, they were not usually performed on living women. They would be performed on mothers who had died in childbirth. Um, very small chance of saying saving the baby, but a small chance isn't no chance. Um, so it's an interesting reference to the possibility um, of those being performed and to a possible connection between witches and midwifery as well. Although there isn't too much of a connection in ancient texts between those two things. Witchcraft is much more thought of as to do with spells and potions and voodoo, um, obviously not connected with um, voodoo as we know it from other cultures, but um, they do have the same kind of technique of little dolls that you can poke <laughs> with nails and things um, to bind you have binding curses that bind people and that kind of thing um, there's not much evidence of connection with midwifery there might be with um, attempts at contraception and abortion but even that would probably be more likely actual midwives who are not witches and while we're on the subject of birth um I went down a bit of a rabbit hole um, when I was looking at this. Braund and Klein had gone for slightly different translations of one of the things mentioned early on as something that witches do. Um, Braund has translated the Latin literally as they take the swelling with the forehead's juice from a newborn foal. Klein has interpreted it as a reference to the call. So mammals, including horses and people, are sometimes born on call, which means that they've still got the amniotic sac around them. Sometimes the head can be poking out or sometimes they're completely encased in it. Um, and uh, certainly with humans, it's, it's harmless. You just kind of take them right out when they are born. Um, but then you have this kind of sac thing. So Klein is interpreting this reference to this swelling with the forehead's juice as maybe they're being born with a call on their head. Sometimes it can be just kind of on the head. Um, there also seems to have been some kind of ancient folklore that the mother of the horse, this is in the case of horses, the mother of the foal had to eat it straight away and that would ensure that she loved the foal. So if we look at Little Scott Jones, which is the big ancient Greek lexicon, um... They refer to the small black fleshy substance on the forehead of a newborn foal. So that's the translation of the Greek word hippomenes, but obviously Lucan's writing in Latin, he doesn't use that word. Um, it seems like maybe that's what he's referring to. Pliny's Natural History, also written in Latin, but 
specifies that the Greek word is what he's talking about. It says, The horse is born with a poisonous substance on its forehead known as hippomenes and used in love filters. It is the size of a fig and of a black colour. The mother devours it immediately on the birth of the foal and until she has done so, she will not suckle it. Uh, Virgil's Aeneid also refers to a priestess of Hecate cutting soft herbs by moonlight with a blade of bronze oozing black poison sap, the milk of dark venom, and she had torn away the forehead of a new foal for stalling the mother's love, preparing for Dido's suicide. I can't find anything from veterinary sites suggesting that horses are born with a weird swelling on their forehead. So I've gone with Klein's interpretation that this is a, a call, that it's presumably a call that's on the head only and that that's been taken off and that, you know, Pliny and Virgil and Lucan don't really know all that much about horse breeding. Um, but I could be wrong. I know pretty much nothing about horses. So please, anybody who knows more about horses than me, if there is some kind of weird swelling that foals are born with on their heads, tweet me at ClassicalJG uh, and let me know. It's also possible that they were in the ancient world because they had a poor diet that gave them weird swellings or something. I don't know. That seems unlikely, but who knows. Anyway, I fell down a total rabbit hole trying to work that out, but I, I ended up going with Klein's interpretation and assumed it was a call. We see once again in this story the importance of proper burial in ancient thought. Eric, though, does dig up corpses. She takes them out of sarcophagi and she even takes the bones and ashes left from a cremation. And she takes them down off crosses and all sorts of things. Um, but still, it, it's still important to be properly buried. Um, and the unburied corpses are most vulnerable. Lucan mentions both cremation and burial, and it sounds like both are being used simultaneously, presumably some kind of personal preference or choice. There doesn't seem to be any particular reason for which is which. He refers to bodies in sarcophagi being drained of moisture and preserved. Now, whether that's some kind of mummification process or it's just the, what happens because you're in a sarcophagus and not buried in the earth, I'm not quite sure. Uh, crucifixion and hanging are both low-status executions, especially crucifixion, which is slaves and the very poorest people. So she's also tending to use the bodies of low-status people. We also get confirmation here that crucifixion victims were indeed nailed to the cross. Um, I remember occasionally as a teenager some people suggesting that was just something done to Jesus to be extra mean um, or even um, made up by Christians because you couldn't only nail hands to the cross because otherwise the body weight would pull the body down and tear through the hand. Um, so you have to be tied up to a cross with ropes and things and then you slowly suffocate as the kind of diaphragm rises and you can't breathe. Um, but evidently nailing crucifixion victims as well as tying them up with ropes was genuinely something that was done in general. Lucan, I don't know if he even knew about Christianity. I guess he might have heard of it, but he's got nothing to do with Christianity. Um, this is just how they crucified people. So I think that's kind of a bit of a whistle-stop tour of a few of the issues that came up um, doing this story. Um, I avoided referring to the, the corpse that is raised as a zombie just because I didn't want that kind of Night of the Living Dead association. Also, this corpse is much more with it than your average zombie and he's been raised for a very specific purpose. It's really like a kind of twisted version of an Oracle of the Dead. Um, but it is interesting to see the kind of revenant uh, appearing in ancient literature. And Eric, though, is one of ancient literature's most famous 
witches. Um, she's pretty memorable. <laughs> she's probably one of the nastiest as well. Um, so this is much kind of gorier and nastier than a lot of the other stories we look at. So there is a very good free translation available by A.S. Klein online at the website poetryintranslation.com. It's an excellent translation, totally freely available. Um, the website poetryintranslation.com is fantastic. It's an amazing resource um, for exactly what it sounds like, translations of poetry um, and even a few bits of prose as well. Suetonius is on there as well. And I've also used Susan Braun's translation, which was published by Oxford World Classics. I've also made use of Susan Braun's notes a couple of times. Um, her translation comes with pretty thorough uh, notes, which is very helpful. Other than that, I've mostly worked from memory because I wrote my master's dissertation on this scene. Um, I ended up talking about the rest of the poem as well a bit, but basically the focus of my master's thesis was this specific scene of Lucan's poem. It was a long time ago, um, 2005, um, so I've had to refresh my memory, but I've, I've mostly pretty much been working from, you know, adapting the translations um, and then working from memory in terms of uh, a lot of this stuff around Thessalian witches and the poem and so on. Um, but I will give uh, a few general recommendations for books on the topic for anyone who's interested. So on Roman witchcraft in general, Ankelou and Clark are the editors of a series called Witchcraft and Magic in Europe. And the volume two, I think it is, of that series is Ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, that's a really, really good series. And I mean, just in general on witchcraft in Europe. Um, so if you have any interest in European witchcraft, I would recommend that series. On Roman witches and necromancy, Daniel Ogden's book Greek and Roman Necromancy is very thorough. Uh, and on Greek as well. Got the Odyssey in there too. If you're interested in the Greek magical papyri found um, in Egypt, uh, Hans-Dieter Betz has published the Greek magical papyri in translation, so you can read them. All sorts of spells, everything from uh, turning yourself invisible to making somebody fall in love with you to fixing a lamp. Just whatever you need a magic spell for, it's there. Uh, and if you're interested in Roman death and burial more generally, Valerie Hope's book Roman Death um, would be a very good one to start with. Uh, so those are all books in my collection. I have read them all at various points in the past, so I suspect bits and pieces of those books are all in here. <laughs> As I've, I've really been working mainly from memory or directly from the translations on this one. So thank you for listening. Happy Halloween. Uh, hope that was a good gory, scary story for Halloween. Uh, we will be back in two months um, with a Christmas, I don't know if it'll be a Christmas themed episode, um, because it depends which historical period we go for, but uh, a ghost story for Christmas anyway, even if it doesn't have Christmas in it. Creepy Classics episodes go out every two months, um, purely because I do not have time to do them any more often than that. Uh, so next episode will be out in December. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. <laughs> <laughs>